what we're doing is not simple. I mean, for any of our companies, it's hard. If you're going to do something that's hard, you want to value the people who are helping you solve the problems, even if they're more silent. What they're doing is valuable. Welcome to All Hands by Lattice, where we believe that people strategy is business strategy. I'm your host, Caitlin Holloway. For the last decade, I've been a people and culture executive at some of the internet's most beloved startups. But my fascination with building true people-first cultures started many, many years ago. From film to tech and a few interesting layovers in between, the one common denominator remains. I am most passionate about enabling people through belonging to create beautiful, innovative products. On all hands, I talk with CEOs and other C-level leaders about how being a people-first company is a strategic advantage. Join us while we chat with these top leaders about how a people-first approach isn't just good for people, it's good for business too. Today on All Hands, we're sharing a very special interview that I did as a part of Lattice's Resources for Humans virtual conference with Ed Catmull. He is the co-founder of Pixar Animation Studios and author of the best-selling book, Creativity, Inc. In addition to the unique and touching stories that are brought to life on screen, Pixar is also known for its phenomenal people-first culture. And I would know because I had the pleasure of working under Ed's leadership for five years. Now, that was a long time ago, yes, granted, but my experience with the studio had a profound impact on my worldview. It's been nearly a decade since we've been in the same room, Ed, but I'll have you know I've given you a great deal of credit for my career arc over the years. So even if you couldn't pick me out of a lineup, you've had a pretty, pretty big impact on me. But I know that I'm not the only one. There are thousands of people who got to experience the magic of working at Pixar and have taken those first principles back out into the world. And now those people are shaping the next generation of company cultures as well. I think few people get the opportunity to publicly thank their role models, so I wasn't about to let this one go unsaid. So thank you. And now to the task at hand. It is my obvious pleasure to have this conversation with you today and to share a bit of that Pixar magic with our guests. Are you ready? I'm ready. Thank you. Excellent. All right. So now I'm a bit old fashioned, but I think it would be nice if we started at the beginning. Can you please quickly share a little bit about yourself and your journey to creating Pixar? Yes. I grew up in Salt Lake City, Utah. This is uh, after World War II and the Great Depression, which actually formed the culture that I grew up in. And the two iconic figures of the time that I was when I was young was uh, Albert Einstein and Walt Disney. And I wanted to be an animator, uh, but I reached the point where I realized that I couldn't draw well enough. So I switched over into physics. Now, when I tell people this, they, they usually feel like it's, it's rather humorous because they seem so incongruous with each other. But my own belief is they're not incongruous, that, that actually the creativity on the scientific side and the, on the artistic side are the same. I got a, an undergraduate degree in physics and a second one in computer science. And then when I returned to graduate school to study computer languages, uh, my very first class was in computer graphics. This is 49 years ago. Completely turned my life around because now here was a time in which the arts and the sciences, in fact, really did come together. It wasn't this nice saying. It was actually true. And here was the frontier for using a computer in the arts and the sciences. So I started to wrestle with the problems of what it would take 
to make it practical. And then I went off to New York. I spent another five years in New York running a research lab. Again, had some amazing people, made some correct decisions, and made some really stupid decisions. Uh, and then I was hired by George Lucas to come bring technology into the film industry. George was the only person of note in this entire industry who believed the technology was going to change the industry. And that, that was pretty remarkable that there was this person that would do this, and he did not represent the general sense of the industry. So he basically funded it. We came up with the changes. And again, I made some mistakes. I learned a lot. I hung on to the things that I realized were true, and I jettisoned the things that I thought were wrong. I had friends in Silicon Valley, because we all went to school. <laughs> the founder of Adobe, who makes Photoshop, was a classmate. And uh, the founder of the person who came up with object oriented programming was a classmate. And Jim Clark, the founder of the company that really got Netscape going, he was a classmate. So it was really this remarkable group of people that were together, and all with this philosophy of changing the world. And I believe that that element that I saw in the classmates there is still an underlying belief that most people have. They want to make a difference in the world. And that's what I've come to, to value and to try to nurture because I was given help at that time in my life. So how did you take it from there? Once, so you, you were in school. You had this incredible group of colleagues that, that you graduated with. You were hired uh, by George Lucas to, to change the world through technology in the world of storytelling. How did that parlay then into Pixar? Well, in the case of Lucasfilm, it turns out that George, while he was funding this, he got a divorce and she got the cash and he kept the company. It was how they divided up but he was in cash poor. And so it was necessary to sell this group. Actually, there were four groups that I was over. There was uh, the computer graphics, digital audio, video editing, and games. But for this group in graphics, it's where our heart was, was in, in making imagery. And uh, Steve Jobs, who had just been kicked out of Apple, bought us, and that was how Pixar, the company, was formed. We have an incredibly good relationship with George because it wasn't as if he had a choice. Right. And so, uh, and there was no conflict over it. It's just, this was the reality. Going through the disasters and the hard things and getting hit over the head with a club is the thing that makes you learn and that changes you, provided you're open to it. You write about this a lot in your book, Creativity Inc. And I, I would say, you know, back when you wrote it, it was not obvious that it was a, a, a business book. For me, it is the, the be-all, end-all to understanding how to help collect a group of people and have them produce. To your point earlier about your, your education and, and your career and the things that you are good at and the things that you love and how sometimes those things don't, don't fit together exactly perfectly in your mind's eye. But as they play out, 
they, they can really come together in a beautiful way. And one of my favorite principles in your book is around people. A lot of people think that having the right idea would be the most essential part of your business. But you, you say that having the right people with the right chemistry is far more important. And I think that the idea that people should be put before product, that, that was an audacious belief 30 plus years ago. So can you explain a little bit to me about why Pixar or why you have always chosen to prioritize people? There are several parts to it. One of them is that ideas aren't singular. If you're going to have a new product or make a company, there really isn't a single idea. It's easy for people to articulate, like, this is the key thing that our company is built around, but it's not true. It's an illusion, is that if you make anything, there are thousands of ideas that are, are, are involved or necessary. And if you simplify it, then it's also easy for a single person to take credit. Like, this is the person who did it. Right. And what it does is it screws up the internal story in the company, but it also screws up the head of the person who thinks that. When in fact, we're all in this together. It takes a lot of people to make something work. And if we don't recognize that it takes a lot of us and that we've all contributed, even though some are silent, if we don't value that, then we actually diminish our ability to keep on doing something which is complex. What we're doing is not simple. I mean, for any of our companies, it's hard. If you're going to do something that's hard, you want to value the people who are helping you solve the problems. Even if they're more silent, what they're doing is valuable. This is something I've definitely experienced firsthand at the studio. I worked in different departments on several films over the years, and I never felt less than. I always felt appreciated and valued for my work contributions, no matter my role. Even when in the early days, I was just getting somebody Marcona almond. Something that has stood out to me that I would love to hear you talk about a little bit more was about getting that right chemistry. You know, at the studio, you know, at any given time, we were working on any number of films and understanding how to get the right people with that right dynamic or the right chemistry is, is a hard thing to do because people are dynamic. And to your point, they change over time. So can you share a little bit about what you think great chemistry really looks like and, and maybe how you go about fostering the right environment to, to bring that out or to help that shine? Well, one thing to note is that we don't always get it right. And part of the struggle is the recognition that oh, you, you put something together, you try it, you, you take a risk, and you look at it after a while and say, oh, this isn't working right. And you have to figure out why. I don't want anybody to get the implication or walk away thinking, oh, well, Pixar's got it right. There are so many issues and problems. And, and the real question is, how do you continually deal with them so that you get, you're, you're trying to get to where you want to be with people so they feel good about it, recognizing that sometimes you, you don't always get it right. And it's like making the stories. It's not that you've got a perfect process. You are continually in the process of analyzing and challenging and questioning what you're doing and why something works or why it doesn't work. So what do we look for? And one of the things we look for is the chemistry in the group, which is a, is a visible manifestation of how things are working. So if there is laughter in the group, that's a good sign. The other one is, while we know that sometimes 
we do something that doesn't work, we don't typically use the terminology of failure. We also don't avoid it. If you avoid terminology, then what you're doing is you're just pretending that it's not there. But if we're working on something, then it doesn't work. But we don't usually say, oh, we failed at it. It's like, oh, that didn't work. So if you look at a team, they're trying to solve a problem and they're working hard to solve the problem. When they try to solve it and it doesn't work and they use the terminology like, this doesn't work, I'm going to try this. The reason we don't use the terminology of failure is failure is actually a very loaded word because it also means that you screwed up or you didn't work hard. That's the reason we don't use the terminology. And sometimes people actually don't work hard (laughs) or they screw up. But the general case is that people are trying to solve a problem. And if it doesn't work, they full well know that it doesn't work. One doesn't need to beat them over the head with it. It doesn't work. I literally could not have said it better myself. Uh, And trust me, I have tried. Uh, So thank you for sharing that. It it really, it's palpable when, when you are with a group of people that they are aligned on a project or a mission and they're in the process of creating the engagement that you feel. And, you know, there, there are so many companies out there, you know, trying to measure this, trying to, to quantify it. And it, it is challenging because at the end of the day, it is that feeling. You you know it when you walk into a building, the energy that surrounds what you are building and how you are building it, the dynamic, the chemistry becomes really, really critical. Now, I want to switch a little bit to the, the hiring for the team. So once you have a team assembled and you are looking to add folks in to, to help bring it to fruition, Have you noticed over the years, are there any certain character traits that you've seen or that might give a good signal for if someone would be a net positive to that team dynamic? Well, this is a difficult question. Let me set aside for the the question of hiring new people. It's that when we start a new project, which in our case is typically films, who do you bring in to join in with the team? And the tendency is that the people working on a film are under a fair amount of pressure to deliver. So what they want is to put on people that they know can do the job. And so they're, therefore, they're looking for the experienced people in the company. But this has a negative consequence in that it's not giving a chance to new people. It's only looking for people that have already proven themselves. So this creates a cultural problem. So I, at one time, I was frustrated because I kept seeing this happen over and over again. So I met with the senior leaders about this. I have to say, with these leaders, they're strong believers in taking risks and doing things that are new. So that's the mindset of these people. Now, to the same group, I asked the question. I said, okay, we've been doing this for years, and we go through the same process, but you frequently cannot get the people that you want. So you have to take people who've not proven themselves. They've not done this job before. So you're taking a risk on people. So of all the times that you've put somebody in a position, hoping that they would rise to the occasion, what percentage of the people were not able to rise to the occasion? And the answer they came back with was, Oh, about 5%. Now, this blew my mind. 5% is in the noise level. And 5% implies that they're actually trying to get to 0%. Right. They don't want 
any failures at all in the process of, of giving somebody a position. Okay, so I had to go back and process this. How is it that a group of people who believe in taking risks don't want to take any risks at all on people? And, and then as I thought about it, I realized that the real issue for them is that in front of them, they have an unknown problem coming at an unknown time of unknown size. That is their risk. So in order to meet that risk, they only want people who are proven to be able to manage any problem. Now, if you explain the logic to them, that the number of people who are actually able to rise to the occasion is almost all of them. So it's a win in the short term and the long term. So at a logical level, they're trying to get only experienced people. It doesn't make any sense. Right. So they agree with the logic. They still can't do it. Right. So that what that means is the need to deliver and look good in delivery overpowers the logic and overpowers uh, what it takes to, to do right by, by the people. Now, now, not every group was this way, but several were, and we realized that it's actually a structural issue. Really? Yeah. And, here, and here's the thing is we were given the power to cast the people whose responsibility was to deliver. They didn't own the careers of the people. They owned the delivery of the film. Right. So what we did was we gave more power to the department heads. So they were the ones that did the casting. Interesting. Okay. And by giving them more power, first of all, they felt better. They had greater responsibility. And now the people knew who it was that was taking care of their careers. Right. And the departments that didn't have the problem were the ones where, in fact, the leaders of the departments had more power. So it was a structural one. But I have to say, it took a while to figure this out. But then we were looking and we were trying, and when it, it just took a while to figure out, oh, okay, this is a structure wants to figure out who owns what. Because everybody wants to believe that somebody's looking out for them. How was that instituting a change on that scale? Did you find that it was simple because people wanted it to all of your points? Or did you find that it was um, something that had to kind of evolve over time? Well, once we understood it, it sort of like it hit us like a thunderbolt. And two of the people who helped clarify this uh, was Catherine Sraffian and Tom Porter. And what they did was to go out and socialize it. And the irony was the people who were most resistant to it were the associate producers who were the ones that had the unpleasant job of trying to wrestle with each other over the casting process. So they were trying to hang on to the worst part of their job. Right. <laughs> it had become almost a built into them that part of their responsibility and part of their self-definition was to handle this tough task. Right. Then they realized it worked better and they didn't have this nasty part of their job. It's true. So saying the words isn't enough, right? It's just, it's just hard to look at, figure out why something works, why it doesn't work. Something that you talk about a lot in the book that is referenced across the, the tech industry is about feedback and Pixar's approach to feedback. So in any company, feedback is essential to success. And you have implemented, you and, and the, the leadership team at Pixar over the years have implemented several different feedback methods. It started first, though, as far as 
we all know, with the Brain Trust. Can you explain to everyone a little bit about what that was and maybe how it's evolved over time? Well, when we made our first film, which is Toy Story, we had an outside force that could hit us over the head with a two-by-four. And this was the, uh, the, the president at the time of Disney Animation, Tom Schumacher. And the one thing I've learned over all the years is for every project, occasionally you need the four-by-four uh, to bring reality in. Just as right now, COVID is our four-by-four. Correct. <laughs> on a whole number of different fronts. Yes. But in general, it's true. It's like you just need that once in a while. And for the people working on the project, they lose objectivity. They've got something in their head about what they're doing. And if it's not quite right, they're trying to adjust what's in their head when sometimes what's in their head needs to be sort of smashed to pieces and they're reassembled. That's a difficult process to go through. But at the same time, Pixar was starting to become more and more successful. And, uh, and at that time, Disney was struggling in terms of its success. And we realized that at some point, the effectiveness of Tom would actually be diminished because of that. So the first time the Brain Trust was put together, which is consisted of six people, it was to provide the feedback to each other. The truth is, that was only working for a while because they're all together all the time, so you actually don't have the external objectivity. Yeah. The Brain Trust was actually working remarkably well, and it evolved over time. So initially it was eight people, and then as we made some more movies, we added people, and it evolved into something which was, uh, in fact, not a group of people. It was the way we ran certain meetings. Not every meeting, but a certain set of meetings. And they consisted of the, or the brain trust meetings were those meetings that took place after the screening of a, of a film when we were making it. And it was very important that safety be a critical part of this meeting because the director or the leadership team of the film is presenting something to their peers and they know that what they're presenting is flawed. So they come in in a vulnerable state. Mm -hmm. Since they're vulnerable, you don't want to make them feel more defensive. If you can make it so they're not defensive, what you're doing is you're making it easier for them to listen. So that's the state that you want. We have some rules around it. One of them is basically it's a peer-to-peer -peer meeting, mm -hmm. which means you have to think about the dynamics of a group that comes together. And as you know, in any group, there's a hierarchy. There are people with power, regardless of whatever their official position is, there are people with power and there are those who feel like they're new and they don't have a lot of power. So how do you address the power dynamics in a room? So one of the rules is that the powerful people in the room are supposed to shut the hell up for the first 10 to 15 minutes. Right, And the reason is that a powerful person, if they start off by speaking, set the tone of the room. And that a lot of people cannot help but respond to the tone that was set by those people. And another rule is that of giving and listening to honest notes. Now, the, the question is, does this always work? And the answer is, usually it does. 
which is indicated by the, the quality of the films, but sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it goes off the rails. Yeah. And it goes off the rails for a variety of reasons. One of them is that people do defer to authority because uh-huh. uh, it's sort of built into human nature to do that. Or there are people who are, don't want to offend somebody else, so they, you know, they won't say what they think. Or there are people who are trying to impress others, or they don't want to offend other people. So you've got these human dynamics going on in a room, and if they can reach a certain point where they actually make it so you don't have an effective room. So that does happen. Yeah. On the other hand, there are times when magic happens. And by magic, I mean that ego has left the room, that ideas come and go without people becoming attached to them. And that's the critical point, is you say something, it might work, it might not work. And if it doesn't work, you're not attached to it. It's not a personal thing, like, oh, I had an idea and they rejected it. If you think that way, then you're attached to your idea. Another thing that Ed suggests are multi-day off-sites, even if they're just virtual nowadays. I learned how important these were, and it's one page I very lovingly and graciously ripped straight out of the Pixar playbook. It's something that I highly encourage every company to do. I think it's really important to change your environment and change the dynamic. It helps creativity flow. Your team begins firing on all cylinders again, and everyone is equally as engaged with what the potential or what the future may be. As a manager, you talk often uh, in in the book and and elsewhere about fostering this positive understanding of failure. Why is this so important to you? We're all experienced with failure in our life. And and as I mentioned earlier, there are really two different meanings to failure. But one of them means that you screwed up or you didn't work hard. but, But also in life, companies fail, governments fail, bridges fail. Uh, relationships fail, and in business and politics, failure is used as a bludgeon with which to beat opponents. So there's a palpable aura of danger around failure. The second meaning, which is something that we all have all understood and experienced, is that we have learned from failures. All of us can say we went through a failure and we learned and we became better because of it. It is almost impossible for people to differentiate those two different meanings of failure, right? It is absolutely a loaded term. It's one of the reasons we're trying to be careful about the use of the word because of people's inability to differentiate those two different meanings. The other thing to note is that failure is asymmetric with respect to time. So even though we know that we learn from failure, we don't have the luxury of calling something an educational failure until after it happens. Right. Because there's sometimes failures actually aren't education at all. They're just, you know, terrible things in our lives. Yes. It's backward looking that it might be educational. Looking forward, it can be still just as scary because we still don't know which of the two that it's going to be. 
Now, if, if you wouldn't mind, I usually do something called a lightning round, uh, where I ask you a few questions, in this case four, uh, very quickly, and you do your best to, to not think too hard, answer them quickly, and then, and then I don't judge you either way. <laughs> it's very exciting. <laughs> Would you be willing to participate with me? I'm willing. Thank you. These are very deep, hard-hitting questions, uh, I promise you. So with that, let's go into the lightning round. Number one. Is a hot dog a sandwich? Both. Oh, I've never gotten that answer before. How exciting. Two, not counting Toy Story, what is your favorite Pixar movie? Well, normally, because I'm asked that question a lot, and then what I say is, well, it's sort of like saying, what's your favorite child? Which is, I recognize is sort of like the cheap answer. The real answer, though, because I was there while they were being made, the stories of the, of the, of the, of the making of the film actually is what I remember more than the film itself. Yeah. Uh, and therefore, it makes it more complex. I then default and go back to the cheesy answer. <laughs> but I don't have a simple answer, largely because, not every film, but there were probably like six or seven where the lessons learned and the meaning for me was actually extremely important. Yeah. And so I, I have several favorites for those quite distinct reasons. Makes sense. Okay, the next one should be easier. Company culture, family or sports team? Uh, I, again, I'd say both. Actually, there's a really good anecdote regarding that, but it's, it's, not, it's not very lightning. That's, hey, hit us. <laughs> we can take it. Oh, it has to do with the thing called the Pier Pirates, which I know you don't know what that is because <laughs> I haven't written about it yet. In uh, preparation... Jim Morris and I met with every single department. He met with 15 and I met with 15 as we're going through all the issues that they had. There was one department which consisted of some of our very best technical people in this department. And they had prepared a list for me of their issues and concerns about the company and their department. And their list was actually longer than any other list. And these meetings all took an hour, except in their case, we couldn't get through the list in the hour. So I said, this is really important. I want to go through the whole thing. Let's reschedule. So I rescheduled, but due to the scheduling, I couldn't get the rescheduled meeting with them until the very end. So they were the last department that I met with. So they started off about, there's like six or seven people in the room. It wasn't the whole department. It was representatives from the department. So one was speaking for them, and he started off by saying, we've been thinking about it, and what we want to do is withdraw our entire list. It is our responsibility to go out and figure out how to solve the problems and the relations we have with others. Whoa, <laughs> okay. So this is pretty cool. And then he said to me, do you like sports, okay? Didn't see this in coming either, although at this point I got sort of a little clue of where this is going. And I said, yes, I do. I have a season ticket holder to the San Francisco Giants. And I said, in fact, it, in one of those games, it was the playoff series. Uh, I think it's for the 2012 World Series. In the playoffs, you can't call a game because it ran. You have to redo it another night but you have to play all the way through unlike the regular season games mm -hmm. and what made this 
playoff series important was that the Giants were down three games to zero. Then they came back and won the next three games. So this is exciting. So on the seventh game, I was there, and we get, and this is in the evening, so we get into this game about the eighth inning. And and the the fact is the Giants are actually comfortably ahead at this point. The, The crowd is crazy, but it starts to rain. The heavens opened up. It's the heaviest rain I've ever seen in San Francisco. It's dumping. The lights are on, so everything is lit up. And at that point, the umpires get together, and they decide whether or not to postpone the game, in which case it takes another night. But they've got the World Series coming up. So they decide to play through the rain. The Giants win. Everybody's going completely crazy. And then I said, the, the interesting thing about that team that went on to win the World Series was there were no superstars. So uh, the guy said, exactly. That's our point. There were no superstars. And he said, we as a group, because they're so incredibly good technically, we're considered to be the superstars of the studio. And we don't think that's right. And then he said, incidentally, I was at that game too. Hence, both. <laughs> and you take the cake. You, you are the least lightning round person I've, I've ever had a lightning round with. But that was phenomenal. You are not only very good at storytelling, you were good at sharing really important lessons. And I, I think that if, if there's anything we can take away from this, it's not that a hot dog is, is both a, a sandwich uh, and not a sandwich, but it's that uh, there are no superstars. So just, Ed, thank you. This has been such an incredible opportunity to, to reconnect and to hear firsthand some of your experiences. So thank you so much for sharing with us today. I'm so very grateful. Well, it's been my pleasure to talk with you. Really enjoy this. And to you, the listener, thank you so much for joining me on this week's episode of All Hands, brought to you by Lattice. I'm your host, Caitlin Holloway. This episode was produced by Pod People, Rachel King, Eliza Lambert, and Samantha Gatsik. Special thanks to Annette Cardwell. Learn more about how Lattice can help your business stay people-focused at Lattice.com or find us on Twitter at LatticeHQ. Don't forget to subscribe to All Hands wherever you get your podcasts. Join us next time. 